0: Good morning. How y'all doing? Survived Thanksgiving, I see. That's why you're here. We're glad you're here this morning. The book of Jude, right before the book of Revelation, the book of Jude as we continue our study, the next to last book of the Bible. While you're turning there, just a reminder that we have an opportunity as a church to bless the folks in Mexicali, Pastor Olachea's church this year, especially the children. And I appreciate the gals and all the effort that they put into setting up that beautiful table there with all the opportunities that we have to do that. So I hope you'll go by the table and see maybe and ask the Lord what, what part he wants you to play in being a hand and helping those folks down there. We have so much here they have so very little down, down there, and it is certainly certainly appreciated. This morning is the third of five messages in the book of Jude. And just quickly to review, this book was written by one of Jesus's brothers. It is one of only two books in the Bible written by one of Jesus' siblings, the other being the book of James in the New Testament. So it has a unique perspective on things. And last week we saw that Jude was wanting to write to this group of Christians about our great salvation that we have and share in common, but that he was compelled through the influence of the Holy Spirit to write about truth and the fact that truth matters. And what we believe and why we believe it matters. And that is because even at this point in church history, not too long after Jesus has ascended and went back to heaven and the church has been established, there were false teachers and false prophets and false teaching and a lot of untruth that had crept into the church. And so he said to all believers, we are all to be theologians. We are all to know the truth of God and reflect it and pass it on to others. Otherwise, we are are living, in a sense, in a diseased doctrine that is not only going to negatively influence us, but then if we live out that diseased doctrine or pass it on to others, they're going to be negatively affected by it as well. Now today, we're going to take the largest chunk of this book, Uh, Because it all deals with the very same thing, and that pretty much is that one of the that the main reason why he's writing to warn us of this false teachers and false prophets and false teaching is because even again at this early stage in the church, there had crept into the church a either distorted view of God or an incomplete view of God, and either one is bad. Human beings should not have a distorted view of God, nor an incomplete view of God. And the only way to get a complete, accurate, clear picture of who God is, is to know Him through His Word that He has revealed to us, and to allow ultimately the Holy Spirit who lives within us to be our guide and teacher. A couple main points that I want us to leave here with this morning before we get into the text. And that is this. I want our hearts and minds to be open to two things primarily from this text this morning. One is that God gave us as human beings a free will. We have choices. God never forced any human being To love him, to follow him, to obey him. That's our choice. But God obviously then also gives those the choice to reject him and live their own way and all of that. But all God says is this, I give every human being a free will, but you understand, right, that your choices and your decisions in life will have consequences. Consequences both in this life and maybe even throughout eternity. You realize that, right? God says. Yes, I give you a choice. But your choices and decisions will have ramifications and consequences to them. And the second main thing I want us to take from this passage today. Is that there is no substitute for love. No substitute for love. In our lives. Both for God and For one another. And I think you'll see why I say that this morning. Because this is such a large passage, I'd like to begin at the beginning in verse 5. And I'd like to just read these verses, verses 5 through 7, this morning. And what we have in this passage to begin with is a warning from Jude. And then he's going to go to a contrast, and then he's going to go to a contradiction, and then he's going to go to some illustrations, and then he's going to end with a prophecy. But he starts out with a warning. A warning about judgment. A warning that God is not only a God of love and grace and mercy, but to get a complete picture of God, he's also a God of justice. He's also a holy God, and he's a God who has told us all along that There's judgment. There are consequences, both now and throughout eternity, to the decisions and choices we make. And the reason why Jude is drilling down on that point is that many times false teachers and false prophets and false teaching and untruth that creeps into the church begins to minimize or deny the reality of judgment. We either create a culture that says, I don't believe in God at all, I don't believe that he even exists, and I don't believe in heaven or hell, I don't believe in anything beyond this life, and I certainly don't believe that I'm ever going to be accountable or judged for my actions and my life. And that's the way and why most people live the way they do. Because for them, they have bought in to all of those lies. There is no God. And they try to understand the universe apart from the God who created the universe. So there is no God. There is no heaven or hell. Those are all, you know, myths of fanatical followers of Jesus. There is no eternity, nothing beyond this life, and there certainly is never any judgment. Never any accountability. Never any responsibility. Jude says, aha, he says, even if you don't accept the Bible as God's word, then at least even look into history, Jude says, and see that there were consequences to people's choices and actions. And certainly God, though, has to be a part of that. Notice what he says in verse 5. I desire to remind you, because it's always important to be mindful of things we already know. Even though he says, you have been fully informed of these facts once and for all, that Jesus, the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, later destroyed those who did not believe. You also know that the angels who do not keep within their proper domain, but abandon their own place of residence, he has kept in eternal chains, in utter darkness, locked up for the judgment of the great day, the day of God's justice to be put on full display. And says, so also Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7, and the neighboring towns, since they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire in a way similar to these angels, are now displayed as an example by suffering the punishment of eternal fire. I want to draw your attention, first of all, to that last phrase of verse 7. Displayed as an example by who? By God. God has said throughout history, I'm going to put these things in plain sight. They're going to be very conspicuous to you. And they are going to serve as a warning that yes, human beings and even angels, all created beings, may have a free will, but that there will be choices and that there will be consequences to those choices. You can choose to disregard God. You can choose to blow God off and, and pretend like He doesn't exist and go your own way and do your own thing. But God says, I have set down even through all of history, example after example, to serve for human beings as a warning that there's judgment when we choose not to follow God's way. He starts with the own, God's own people, the Israelites. He said, do not... We all understand that even though God saved them out of of bondage in Egypt, that many of them didn't believe. They never did. And so they died in the wilderness. Why? Because of unbelief. And then he said, Oh, and the angels. The angels. He said there was a group of angels. He's not even talking now about Lucifer and and a lot of the the demons. He said there was this group of angels that crossed a boundary that God gave to them. They did not stay within the boundary that God gave them even after the fall. And because of what they did, which by the way, in a couple weeks when we start a little mini-series in the book of Genesis, I think we're going to see who those angels are and what they did and why. But God said they... God judged them in a sense ahead of time. They're now already in chains waiting for the final judgment. They're not allowed, even like, you know, the devil and other demons to to have the influence that they have today. No, no, they forfeited that. God judged them and locked them away until the final day. And then he uses Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, Does not man know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? God rained fire and brimstone down and literally destroyed those two cities. Cities that the book of Genesis describes as just almost like the Garden of Eden and the Garden of God. These were privileged cities in a privileged place. Now, What Jude is saying is, do we not heed the warnings that God gives us? That yes, he's a God of love and grace and mercy, but he's also a God who will judge because he's a holy God. He's a God of justice. And here's the thing I want us to see from this and why I said earlier what I said. One of the things that really became clear to me as I just kept thinking about this passage. Just these verses was all the advantages and privileges all of these people had. So that if you were talking about just someone who had an experience with God, because many times the naysayers and the scoffers and the mockers today will say, well, if God just made himself more real to people, if God just was more active, if God was just out there displaying himself more then pe- If God would do more miracles than people would believe. And there wouldn't be all this unbelief and rebellion against God and all this. And Jude is saying, do you not realize the examples that I gave you that all of these examples were examples of people that actually were very close to God or had great knowledge of God and knew exactly who he was and what he was capable of and what he was doing. And yet in their human heart, they never had a love for God. They had great experience with God, but they had no love for God. Let's talk first about the Israelites. How many miracles did the Jewish people see even before they were delivered out of Egypt? They saw all the plagues. They saw the great prophet Moses. They they crossed on dry ground through the Red Sea. All those spiritual experiences, though, did not create in them not only a belief in God, but a love for God. And at the end of the day, all those experiences meant nothing because their heart was not open to God. And then you think about the angels. Angels! Angels! No one knew God and was closer to God. They were in heaven one, at one point. They had an intimate understanding and comprehension of God that you and I even probably don't even have yet. And yet they found in themselves no lasting love for God. Unlike the Israelites whose primary purpose sin was unbelief. Their primary sin was arrogance and pride. God, we don't need you and we can do things our own way. So they basically washed their hands of God and went on. And even when God said, no, no, I will allow you to exist, but you've got to exist within this boundary. It was like, nope, God, we're going to still do our own thing. So God finally said, fine, I'll take all your freedom away and I will lock you in chains until the day of final judgment. You have forfeited your freedom. And then Sodom and Gomorrah. Many people don't realize this. But do you realize that Sodom and Gomorrah and their destruction only happened about a hundred years after Noah had died? And that Noah's sons were still living When Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. And the reason I say this is because it's not like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah had lived way beyond a time where they had heard and knew and even had people who, you know, obviously came from that time, Noah and his family, who said, oh my goodness, worldwide flood, yeah, we've all heard about it. In fact, you and I even know that every ancient culture, every culture across the planet has some form of a story of an ancient flood or worldwide flood. And yet it didn't seem to make a difference to these people. It was like, I don't care. We're going to still go and do what we want to do and do it our way. And God, in his mercy and grace and love, let these things go on for quite a while before he finally intervened and stepped in. He gave the Israelites chance after chance miracle after miracle even moses was like i'm fed up with these people and god said go back you know let's keep working with and finally god said that's it the angels that's it i have given you given you given you all this rope and you continue to rebel done sodom and gomorrah years years of opportunity Even Abraham's intercession. No. Finally, God said, that's it. Because God will only allow sin and the destructive effects of sin to go so far. And then God says, enough. Not because he's this angry, you know, God that just is out there to get people because he's a God of love and he he cannot only stand for so long to see people not only destroy their own lives, but to destroy other people's lives and to destroy the very society they live in. And so Jude says, I'm giving all a warning that you may hear there is no God and there will never be judgment, and there will never be consequences, and you and I don't have to be responsible for our actions. But Jude says, God has set forth example after example, warning after warning, down through history, that that simply is not true. And if we're going to have an undistorted or complete picture of who God is, then we must accept the fact that he is a God of love, a God of grace, a God of mercy, but he's also a holy God, a God of accountability, and a God of judgment. And then Jude gives a contrast in verse 8. He says, yet these men, speaking about the false teachers and false prophets, as a result of their dreams, their personal aspirations, defile the flesh, reject authority, and even insult the glorious ones. But he says, even when Michael, the archangel, was arguing with the devil and debating with him concerning Moses' body, he did not dare to bring a slanderous judgment, but said, may the Lord rebuke you. Now again, Jude is really delving into some sort of obscure things that even many Christians do not know about, but the Bible teaches that when Moses died, God buried Moses. No human being knows where Moses is buried. Nobody. Only God. But evidently, Satan wanted Moses' body, if nothing else, for some kind of idol worship. You know how even today, we have even in our day, after hundreds of years down through history, all these churches and religious people, they get these artifacts, and they get these religious symbols and things like that, and they worship them instead of worshiping God. Idols. They become idols. And so maybe one of the, the things that Satan won in Moses' body for is actually so that it would become a religious idol. That people would worship Moses rather than worship God, because that's all Satan cares about. It's not that all oh, you, you can't, you know, have God in your, in your universe somewhere, but that we want to introduce all these idols and distractions to you to where God is not the priority of your worship. He doesn't occupy first place. He's just part of the pantheon of things you worship. But the Bible says that Michael intervened in, you know, God's place there and said, look, it's not going to happen, Satan. And I I really believe that Michael and Lucifer were probably the two greatest, most powerful angels that God ever created. In fact, Michael's only one of two uh, other angels, as far as those that stayed with God and did not rebel with Lucifer into the fall, that's actually mentioned in the Bible. The other one is Gabriel. We know the Bible teaches there are myriads, numberless amounts of angels that God made. We don't know how many fell with Lucifer. But we do know this. Based upon the word of God, Michael intervened and said, Nope, Satan, you're not getting the body. But notice, what Jude is saying here is also that even in his firm stance against the devil, he did it in a humble way. He knew, even as Michael the archangel, his place. And he didn't, you know, come at the devil in a dishonorable manner. He said, the Lord will rebuke. And why he's using Michael, the archangel, as a contrast is because he says many of those who either reject the truth of God or who peddle untruth about God in some way, the false prophets and false teachers, they have not remembered their place. We certainly could say that today, couldn't we? How many people in our society no longer know their place? They don't stay within their place. That's exactly what happened to the angels. They abandoned, notice verse 6, their own place. They didn't stay where they belonged. And that's exactly what the devil did. But Michael knew his place. And when you and I know God and have a healthy reverence and a healthy respect and a healthy fear for God, it will produce two things in our life. Humility, not pride and arrogance. And two, we will always know our place. And so he's saying, here's Michael as a contrast to the fallen angels and even the fallen human beings. Now again, what is Jude's motivation for writing about all this? Because these false teachers and false prophets have creeped into churches and have, you know, not only put all this untruth about God, these distorted views about God and incomplete truths about God within the church itself, but because many people are not established upon a firm foundation of truth, they are very vulnerable and susceptible to all this false teaching. And we see that even multiplied ten times over today. In fact, again, back when I I even worked with people in cults, and if you study cults at all, not that you should study the cult itself, but why people get sucked into cults, you will probably discover that at least 80% of the people who end up in cults have some kind of religious background, especially some kind of Christian background but they've never been established in truth deep enough to not buy into the lies of the cults and the cult leaders. And so they get sucked into it. Because they're looking for something spiritual, something beyond what they've already experienced, but they never found it in their church, so now they're looking for it outside somewhere. And Jude is simply saying, be careful. Choices and decisions in our life have unbelievable consequences and ramifications to them and if we just disregard what god and his word says we will suffer loss we will experience pain and misery we've got to know our place which leads us to verse 10 the contradiction because notice what jude says these men do not understand the things that they slander. Oh my goodness. You can't turn on television, which I really try not to too much anymore, but you can't turn on any commentators, especially any kind of news or political commentators, and go, you really don't understand what you're talking about, do you? Jude says that's a common problem. In fact, they're trying to define spiritual reality, but they're spiritually blind to spiritual reality. And they slander the things. And then they are being destroyed, notice, by the very things that, like irrational animals, they instinctively comprehend. Wow. Here's what Jude is saying. Here's the contradiction. The very things that they don't want to let go of, that they are unwilling to let go of in their life, are the very things that end up destroying them. Or... They not only are unwilling to let go of it, or maybe they just lack the willpower or the power from within to be able to let go of it. How sad, Jude says. And that's the contradiction. You know, we want to do things our way. God, we don't want to go your way. And yet Jude says, you realize when you and I say, God, I've got a better way than yours, and we go down that way, we end up suffering loss. We end up experiencing pain. We end up being miserable by disregarding the truth of God. And the very thing that we so want to do things our way, rather than God's way, ends up destroying us. Let me also say this. Something maybe that we don't think about as much as we should. Not that I want us to think about the devil and demons a lot. But we we should realize that the devil and all the demons are absolutely miserable. Right? They don't have any joy in their life. They're not fulfilled and satisfied they're absolutely miserable they're the most miserable beings in the universe and all they try to do in their whole existence is make other people miserable join me in my misery once they rebelled against god and went their own way there was no joy to be found there was no fulfillment or satisfaction to be found yep they did it their way but they're not happy they're absolutely hateful human or creations of god and we see a parallel in humanity do we not do you not see it maybe at times in your own life or in the life of a family member or a friend or a coworker or someone you go to school with do you not see this that those who are miserable those who are miserable try to make other people miserable too join me in my misery I don't want you to 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 talk to me about me getting out i I, I want to stay miserable I just want to pull you down with me we see it all the time in our society and that's exactly what the devil and all the demons do they're not and we don't see through that a lot of times. It's almost like, do we ever think that somehow, oh, the devil's just living it up, and, the, and no wonder so many people, but no. They're miserable creatures. But people, again, because they're so clouded in their thinking, and because they don't have the truth of God to guide them, they end up following right down the path of misery. They end up being destroyed by the very things that they're unwilling to let go of. And at any time, God says, I can help you let go of that. I can help you get rid of that. I've got forgiveness on the way. I will redeem you. I will restore you. I will save you. I will rescue you. I will deliver you at any time. But all we have to do is call out on the name of the Lord. But so many people again in their pride and in their arrogance and in their unbelief refuse to call upon the God who can save them and be the answer. And we see it time after time after time in our society that people who are unwilling to turn to God end up being destroyed by the very things that they will not let go of. Think about all the examples we have even in our society today of of famous people and Hollywood stars and sports stars who have literally destroyed their lives, their own lives, and their own livelihood. Why? Because they were unwilling to let go. And the very things that they held on to were the very things that destroyed them and took them to an early grave. That's exactly what Jude says. Do we not see the contradiction in all of this? And then Jude gives in verse 11, 12, and 13 nine illustrations of the kind of of people who peddle a lack of truth or who buy into that truth. He says they traveled down Cain's path. What was Cain's path? He removed the source of conviction from his life. Abel you're a conviction to me. You, 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 you show me up. You, you show that there could be another way. I don't like it. I'm getting rid of you. That's the way people are today. They don't like conviction. They don't like to have it shown that there could be another way other than their way. And so they will remove that source of conviction or remove themselves from the source of conviction. Balaam's error. He was all about the almighty dollar or the buck. That's all he cared about. Korah's rebellion was all about not wanting to submit or surrender to divine authority, the authority of Moses and Aaron that God had placed upon them. Notice these other illustrations. They are dangerous reefs in your love feast. They are shepherds who only feed themselves. Well, that's a contradiction too. Shepherds are all about making sure the sheep get fed, not the other way around. I love this next one. Waterless clouds. It's like they've got a lot of promise. They show a lot of promise, but there's nothing more than that. They they never produce anything. They're trees without fruit. They are wild sea waves. And then notice wayward stars just sort of wandering. Unsettled. So Jude has said, look, I'm going to give you a warning. I'm going to give you a contrast in Michael the archangel. I'm going to show you the contradiction here that's taking place. And I'm going to give you all these illustrations because Jesus even said, you will know them by their fruit. Jude says, here's some fruit to look at or lack of it. And then finally, in verse 14, Jude says this. Now, Enoch, one who walked with God and was actually taken to heaven by God before he died, the seventh in descent, beginning with Adam, even prophesied gave us a glimpse into the future. People want to know what the future holds. God, through prophecy, gives us a glimpse into the future if we will simply be interested in what God has already revealed about it and says, look, the Lord is coming with thousands and thousands of His holy ones. I believe that includes you and I if we are a Christian. I believe it, yes, it includes the holy angels, but I believe it also includes the saints of God. And the Bible says he's going to come and execute judgment on all and convict every person of all their thoroughly ungodly deeds that they have committed and of all the harsh words that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jude is saying there's coming a day of vindication for Jesus Christ and for all God's people and that there's coming a day where God's justice will be put on display. In fact, that is one of the great hopes for the Christian. If you and I thought that God was just going to let things go the way they are and never intervene at all and that things were just going to continue to deteriorate and decay throughout our society and things were just going to continue to get worse and worse and nothing was ever going to change, wouldn't that be pretty depressing? I think it would. One of the things that excites me and that I have anticipation for as a follower of God is knowing that one day Jesus Christ is going to intervene very dramatically in human history and He's going to come again. And when He comes this time, He's not coming to die on a cross for sin. He's coming to judge the world in righteousness. Because God is a just God. And those who say, well, why doesn't God, if he does exist, do anything about it? God is doing something about it. And one day, oh my, God will do something about all the injustice that is happening around the world. But Peter says, God right now, before that day comes, is giving us as human beings a chance to get things right with him. Because one of the things that Jude is teaching here is that what we do with Jesus now determines how God deals with us in eternity. Let me repeat that. What we do with Jesus now determines how God will deal with us in eternity. Because our choices and our decisions have consequences. And God right now is giving us all opportunity to get things right before he comes. Now, if you're here today and you are a Christian, you are a child of God, you never have to worry about God coming in judgment to you. Because the Bible clearly teaches that there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but I just say, praise God for that. I never have to be concerned or worried at all that somehow God is going to judge me one day because I've accepted the judgment of God for my sin when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. And Jesus Christ took my punishment, took my judgment upon himself on that cross. But God had to punish and judge sin because He's holy and He's just. And Jesus said, I'll take their place. So all who believe in Him, we will never have to worry or be concerned about the judgment of God. But for those who say no to God, for those who say, I'll make my own way to heaven, for those who say, there is no heaven, there is no hell, there is no eternity, there is no judgment coming... You have that choice to believe that God will never force you into believing what his word says. But know this, when you cross into eternity, I truly believe that that day you cross into eternity, if you reject what we've talked about here, I believe God will allow you to remember this very day. And that you had an opportunity in an auditorium in Chandler, Arizona, to hear the truth of God. And that you cannot say when you went into eternity, I didn't know that God was going to judge. I didn't know that there were those kind of eternal consequences for basically disregarding God and His Word. I didn't know. No, no. You will remember this day you will remember this day. And my hope and prayer is that there won't be anyone here today or who hears this message over podcasts that that will be true. That you will make sure, unlike the Israelites, unlike the angels who sinned, unlike the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, unlike these false teachers and false prophets down through history and those who were susceptible to their false teaching, that your heart will be open to God and that you and I will realize that there is no substitute for love. All these people that Jude gave us examples of, they had experiences with God that you and I could only dream about and yet it made no difference in their life. Life or in their destiny. Because, unlike what many even Christians believe today, experience is no substitute for love. The bottom line is do you love God? Because if you and I love God, then everything else will flow out of that. And that is really the only sure, stable, sustainable thing. That we can have, which is why God said in his word, what is the number one commandment to love the Lord, our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and to love our neighbors, ourself. Why? Because there's no substitute for love. If a relationship is not based on love, then guess what? There's nothing sure about that relationship. There's nothing stable about that relationship. There's nothing sustainable about that relationship. Which is why many relationships today, including people's relationship with God that is only superficial and not based on love, and their relationships with each other, will not last because it's not based on love. Only relationships based on love and founded on love were, will be sure, steadfast, and sustainable. Read 1 Corinthians 13. Love never ends. Nothing can take the place of love. And God is basically asking us today, do you love me? Isn't that what he asked Peter? Peter? After he rose from the dead and Peter had denied him, he went up to Peter and said, Peter, do you love me? Because from here on out, that's really the only thing that's going to matter. You love me, everything else will take care of itself. It's not about your experiences with me, Peter, because you had plenty of them and you still failed. It's about your heart for me and your love for me. That's where it's all at. And that's what Jude is warning us about here in this passage. Let's pray. And let's stand as we pray this morning. God, I thank you for the comfort that comes from your word. But I also thank you, God, for the warnings that come as well. For the passages that give us calmness, but for the passages that also give us correction. God, I pray today that we would heed the warning from the book of Jude. And realize, God, that there is no substitute for love in our life. And our choices and decisions will have consequences. You are a just and holy God as much as you are a God of love and mercy and grace. And that as your followers, it is up to us, it is our responsibility, it is our charge to make sure that we display before others a complete picture of who you are, not a distorted or incomplete picture. And so God, I pray that we would live our lives according to your truth. May this be the desire of our heart today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.